Take your Bible, please, and turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 1. That's our passage today, Psalm, Psalm, the book of Psalms. We are in a series of messages overviewing the books of the Bible, book by book, and today we're up to the book of Psalms. And as you find Psalm chapter 1, here's the key concept for this morning. Praise your way through life's problems. Praise your way through. The Psalms show us so often words of praise. So what are the Psalms? And where do they come from? The Psalms are basically poems. Mostly they are lyrics to songs. Holy Spirit-inspired poems designed to instruct us and to encourage us. The Psalms show us how to handle our emotions, what to do with joy and what to do with sadness and disappointment. They instruct us to lay it all before the Lord in worship. And they come from various authors over long stretches of time. Seventy-three Psalms are written by David. Twelve are written by a man named Asaph. Two by Solomon, one by Moses, one by Ethan, twelve by the sons of Korah. And there are many other authors of Psalms that you'll pick up as you read through the, 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 the greater book. But I want to pause with, at the sons of Korah because something important there might go unnoticed. Back in Numbers chapter 16, we encountered the man Korah. During the wilderness wanderings, Korah led a rebellion against the, the leadership of Moses and Aaron, a rebellion that cost 250 lives. Korah's issue was this. He didn't believe that it was right that the priests should only come from the line of Aaron. He thought that that rule was arbitrary. Somehow Moses and Aaron were making a power grab by coming up with that law. And so he led a rebellion against their leadership. Moses went to the Lord and, and pled his case, and as a result of that situation, as I said, 250 people died, the friends and family of Korah. But what we learn from Psalms is that not all the family of Korah followed his rebellious ways. Some of them uh, stayed true to the leadership of Moses and Aaron, and here we are uh, generations later. And it is the sons of this man who are the worship leaders in the temple around the time of David. And they are composing songs and leading the people in worship. I pointed out to you to show how our God forgives. To show how God gives second and third chances. A demonstration of his mercy that the descendants of a rebel now compose and lead the songs of the faithful the sons of Korah. But the Psalms are not, the, but Psalms, the book, is not just a collection of songs. Actually, it is a collection of collections. Hebrew scholars point out to us that within the book that we call Psalms, there is actually five books of poetry. The books are from 1 to 41, that's book 1. Book 2, 42 to 72. Book 3, 73 to 89. Book 4, 90 to 106. Book 5, 107 to 150. And each of these books within the book ends with an explanation of praise, just a, a benediction, if you will, that uh, expresses praise and glory to God. So the end of book 1, for instance, in chapter 43, verse 13, says this. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. 
And there, book one is drawn to a conclusion. Now, we don't know why the ancient uh, authors grouped the books the way that they did. We don't know exactly what the point of that was, but Hebrew scholars will point to this pattern as being very obvious. And so, how, do we, how, how were the Psalms used? And to understand that question, we need to note their characteristics. By and large, the Psalms are intended to be sung. When you read Psalms, you're reading the songbook of ancient Israel. You're reading lyrics to their songs. In fact, these songs have come into Christian worship for thousands of years. Still, you can purchase hymn books that are the lyrics of which are the Psalms. It's always been used that way. Some of these were composed specifically to be used in services, public services like ours. And other songs were composed privately, but brought into the songbook of the people of Israel. We know that they're songs because as you read throughout the book of Psalms, you'll see musical direction. For instance, just turn a page over to Psalm 4. And Psalm 4 tells us that it is to be sung with stringed instruments. Psalm 5 in the, uh, in the uh, uh, directions on top says it's to be sung along with flutes. We find this musical direction all throughout the Psalms. Psalm 9, for instance, is, is said to be sung to the tune of death of a son. Psalm 57, 58, and 59 are all meant to be sung to the tune of the song, Do Not Destroy. Psalm 22 is meant to be sung to a tune, to a tune the doe of the morning. Now, none of us know those songs anymore. Those melodies have been lost to us, but we see the lyric of those melodies here in the songbook of the faith. But we know that they were hymns and songs. And it's amazing the variety of instruments that are called for to be used in the worship using these songs. All kinds of instruments are called for. Stringed instruments, harps, flutes, trumpets, drums, cymbals. It shows us that God is a God of variety. He likes all kinds of styles of music. It all works together for the symphony of praise that God receives. So this brings us to some common questions. And one of the common questions as you read the Psalms is, how are you to understand the word selah that is printed very often in the Psalms in the margins? For instance, go to Psalm 3, verse 2. It shows up there for the first time in the book. Verse 2 of Psalm 3 says, Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. And then in the margin you see the word selah. What are, what are we to make with that? Selah shows up 71 times in the Psalms. It has to mean something. But we don't know what. It's a mystery. The best guess is this. The best guess is that Selah is a musical uh, direction. It is, a, it is a term that indicates at that moment the congregation is to be quiet and let the instruments play while the leader then, then joins in a little bit later and moves on with the lyric of the song. We think that that's the kind of direction we're receiving there. And if so, it means that the word selah is not intended to be read out loud when we read the Psalms out loud. But if you do... No harm done because we're not really sure about what we're talking about there. All right? That's just, that's just a best guess. 
But the Psalms are written and compiled over a period of time, all under the guiding hand of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Pardon me. And what we need to remember is that as, as lyrics, song lyrics, the Psalms are poetry. But they are Hebrew poetry, not English poetry. And Hebrew poetry has two qualities that make it poetic to the Hebrew ear. Number one is the beat or the meter when you read the verses out loud, the pronunciation of the words, the kind of rhythm that happens there. And number two is the parallelism of ideas that are in the various lines. What is not present in Hebrew poetry is rhyme. That's English poetry, we care about rhyme. When we read a poem, for most of us, we like to have it rhyme, you know? Like, like the boy who lost his girlfriend and she broke up with him and he was brokenhearted, so he wrote her a poem. And the poem that he wrote was, Roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. We love that. It rhymes. That's good. Now that's a poem. But she, unfortunately, wrote him a poem back. The roses are wilting, the violets are dead, the sugar is lumpy, and so is your head. See, here we have kind of contrasting poems, but the point is that they rhyme for an English reader, English ear. That's poetry, okay? But not for the Hebrew. There was no rhyming. They cared about the beat, the meter of the pronunciation, and the parallel thought. But usually, or not usually, but very often, the meter is hard to carry over when you bring Hebrew to English. But there are some examples of it. So let me show you. Psalm 62, verse 2, carries a 3-3 three, three meter. So it goes like this. We'll show you on the screen. It shows, test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. You see how each of those lines has got a three-beat meter to it. That's an example of the kind of rhythm we're talking about. In Psalm 27, verse 1, there's a 3-2 beat meter. It says, the Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? That's the three-two kind of, kind of rhythm. It's very difficult, as I said, to retain that coming from Hebrew into English in terms of the pronunciation, but every once in a while it shows up, and, and that, would be, that would be an example of Hebrew poetry. But by far the most profound aspect that made it poetry to the Hebrew uh, ear was parallelism of thought. And that we see clearly all throughout the Psalms. Psalm 103.10, for instance, talking about the Lord, says, He does not treat us as our sins deserve, that's line one, or repay us according to our iniquities, line two. Now that is what we call synonymous parallelism because both of those lines say the same thing. It's important as a Bible reader for you to know that as a Hebrew a poem, they're using synonymous parallelism there because you're meant to read those two lines together as a unit and, and take it all together. What you're not meant to do is to begin to pick it apart and try to figure out the differences between what a sin is and what an iniquity is or what treat us means that's different than repay us. Once we start to dabble in that kind of thing, that's, we're, we're beating the psalm to death by Western analysis. That's not what the Hebrew mind would do. It's, it's a parallelism of thought. But not all parallelism is synonymous. So another example is Psalm 99, verse 2, where, it, where it, the psalm builds. For instance, great is the Lord in Zion. He's exalted over all the nations. You see how the concept gets bigger. 
that's called constructive parallelism. And that, that again, to the Hebrew mind, this is a, po- a poetic expression of truth about God. Still, another kind of parallelism is antithetical parallelism, where the first line is contrasted with the second line. So, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, Psalm 1, verse 6, but the way of the wicked will perish. Opposite, antithetical parallelism. What I want you to see is, to the Hebrew mind, it is this kind of construction of ideas that made something a poem. Now, all of this might seem a little dry to us as we're kind of analyzing this, and there's other kinds of parallelism as well, but what I I want you to notice is what God was doing in using Hebrew as the language of his songbook. This type of poetry loses nothing in translation. In other words, the parallel thoughts, antithetical, synthetic, whatever it is, those pa- parallelism uh, remains there no matter what language is being spoken. God always knew that he wanted his songbook read in every language, every tribe, every people group all around the world. And this way he retained that essential Hebrew poetic quality no matter what language is being spoken. If it was rhyme, we would lose it completely. A good example of this is in my house I have a a good copy of Dante's Inferno. And what I like about the copy is on one side I see the Italian and on the other side I see English, okay? Now, when you read in the Italian, even if you don't read Italian, it's obvious that all these words rhyme at the end of the lines. But when you read English, none of that shows up. And I would never know that it had that quality if I didn't see in the original language. So God is carrying this sense of his poetry, losing nothing no matter what language you speak. So these are the songs sung in private worship and public worship. And in the poetry of praise of the Hebrew people, you learn a lot about God. And you learn a lot about what he expects of us. So let's ask the question. What are the characteristics of the people of God that come out of the pages of the book of Psalms? And go back to Psalm chapter 1 because there it begins. We begin with the expression that the people of God obey. Psalm 1 sets the stage for the rest of the Psalms. It asks the question, what are the kind of people who will sing these songs? And what kind of person will refuse to sing these songs? You follow along as I read in Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Psalm 1 establishes the principle that God's people find delight in God's design for living as expressed in His Word. God's design for living expresses and carries uh, from God's character. He speaks His will for us as He speaks His love for us. And the true believer, therefore, is a person who doesn't make all of life's decisions simply based on their own preferences but is directed from on high, recognizing that the life that God has for me is my best life. And that's what I want. I will find delight there. Psalm 1 reminds us that there are alternative pathways with alternative destinations and alternative destinies. On one pathway, it's called righteousness. 
And the comparison there is to a strong tree, firm and secure. The other pathway is called wickedness. And by the time you get to verse 4 of chapter 1, the wicked are seen to be uh, ultimately like chaff, the waste of the wheat blowing in the winds. The essential teaching for God's people is this. There is joy in obedience, not just duty. There is happiness in living the way that God wants us to live. We find delight in the things of God. The psalmist in Psalm 119 expresses it this way. Open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things in your law. That's what the person of God looks for. I'm looking for the delight that's found in the things of God. The psalmist says, value the right delight. Choose the right joy. For as you live in a way that pleases God, you see, what happens is He is pleased and that pleasure is reflected back to you in joy. That's the life we're all invited to have through the Psalms. Psalm, God's people obey, number one. Secondly, God's people praise Him. Now that can be found almost anywhere in the Psalms. There's a theme that runs throughout the entire book. But if you go with me to ch uh, chapter 34 or Psalm 34, we'll just land there and hear the words of praise. Psalm 34, verse 1. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. I will boast in the Lord. The psalmist shows us that the people of God are to be impressed by God proud of God in a sense, seeing his handiwork all around and ready to give him praise. I read that statement, I will boast in the Lord, and I, I thought of a comedy routine I heard years ago. Do you remember the comedian Yakov Shmurnov? He was an immigrant from Russia, as his name gives away, and his routine was all about the difference between the United States and Russia particularly about all the conveniences that we have in the United States that they didn't have in Russia. And he used the grocery store as a good example. He says, I, I went through the grocery store and there I saw powdered milk. Just add water and you have milk. Then I saw powdered orange juice. Just add water, you have orange juice. Then I saw powdered lemonade. Just add water and you have lemonade. I walked an aisle over and I saw baby powder and I thought what a country <laughs> well the psalmist says you know the people of God have that same feeling about God what a God we serve look look at all around and ready to praise him at a moment's notice people of God praise thirdly the people of God remember we sang a psalm earlier in this service, part of Psalm 136. Psalm 136 is a psalm of memory. We pick up the reading in verse 13. He's talking about God. He says, To him who divided the Red Sea asunder, his love endures forever. And brought Israel through the midst of it, his love endures forever. But swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea, his love endures forever. To him who led his people through the desert, his love endures forever. They sang that psalm the same way we sang the song today. It was a different tune, no doubt, but you could hear the leader leading and the people responding, his love endures forever. And they are singing that as they remember what God has done for them, recalling in the song their great deliverance. 
You see, when we remember, it gives perspective. When we remember, it shows us the journey of life. They are recalling in that song, we were slaves. We were serving in Egypt. We were captured there. But God intervened in His love. And He brought us to freedom. And He made us a people. It's important for all of us who know Christ as Savior to remember the but God moments in life. Right? But God. I was lost. I was hopeless. I was addicted. I was, I was out on the street. I was without purpose, without meaning, without any sense of worth in my life. But God got a hold of my life. It's important that you have memory on those but God moments that give perspective today. I can look back and see what God has done. And as they remembered, they passed that memory on to their children of the greatness of God. God's people remember. And fourthly, God's people repent. Seven of the Psalms are Psalms of repentance and confession. They are 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. Expressions of confession and repentance. And they remind us that the, the, the walk with God, a Christian life, is a continual journey of repentance. Because we are not perfect people. We are just those who have been touched with the forgiving love of Jesus Christ. Repentance is called for. And they remind us that repentance is more than just feeling sorry about bad stuff that I do. Repentance is turning away from that bad stuff that I do and determining by God's grace and strength to head in a new direction. It takes confession. It takes a a new determination in life and it takes God's nearness. Confession and repentance caught up because we will blow it. We, we all blow it, and we need to be willing to confess. I found this prayer recently. It was a written-out prayer. It said this, Dear God, so far today I've done all right. I haven't gossiped. I haven't lost my temper. I haven't been greedy or rude or nasty or grumpy or selfish. And God, I'm thankful for that. But in a minute, I have to get out of bed. And from then on, I'm going to need some help. And that is true for us all. And so confession and repentance is called for. The psalmist reminds us of that. Psalm 32, for for example, verse 5 says this, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. See, Satan wants you to believe that if you are truly honest, if you really repent and confess, all you will get is punishment. He wants you to believe that all you will get is a spanking from God because it's all about discipline. But the psalmist reminds us that confession brings the exhibit of God's grace and His mercy. And you were merciful to me. You forgave the guilt of my sin. Fifthly, God's people trust Him. They trust. You have to believe that God is greater than self if you're going to get on in the walk of faith. And you have to believe that what God has for you in the walk of faith is good and brings delight. We have to believe that. And when we believe that, we find it to be true in the greatness of God and we can trust Him for our future. Let me tell you, people who, Christian people, who are trapped in ongoing sin, this is the point right here. 
because they don't believe that the pleasure they will find in God is greater than the pleasure they find in the sin. And so that sin traps them there. And the walk of faith is stunted and growth doesn't happen. But the psalmist calls us to trust in a great and glorious God in whom we can put all confidence. So Psalm 62, my soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. He alone is my rock and salvation, my fortress. I will never be shaken. That's trust and faith in God. When you combine all of these ideas, you see that the Psalms is a book that calls us to be honest with God and to be humble before Him. It reminds us that no matter what our emotions or our circumstance, God can be trusted with our heart. In a sense, it calls us to the very kind of worship that Jesus calls us to in John chapter 4, when he says, True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. They are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Jesus reminds us God is looking to turn people from sinners to worshipers. That's what he wants to do. And when you worship God in spirit and in truth, you will find the strength to live a life bathed in praise. And that is a strong life. That's what we're called. We see it in the the book of the Psalms. Well, we're going to conclude today's service lifting our voices in praise to God. And so as the team comes back up to the platform, I'm going to ask you to speak words of a praise psalm with me. We're going to put it on the screen, and then we'll sing together. But, but first, let's just kind of set the stage and set our hearts with this expression of praise from Psalm 148. It's going to be on the screen, and we'll read it together. Okay, let's read together. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from heavens. Praise Him in the heights above. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His heavenly hosts. Kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth, young men and maidens, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord. For His name alone is exalted. Praise the Lord. 